Welcome everyone to this episode of Manufacturing Talk Radio. I'm Tim Grady and I'm here with Lou Weiss, who's the founder of Manufacturing Talk Radio. He's also the president of All Metals and Forge Group. If you're looking for open die forgings and seamless rolled rings, check out steelforge.com. Joining us is Dr. Chris Keel from Armada Corporate Intelligence. Chris does a monthly report for us. He frequently talks about the flagship report that they put out three times a week or the ACES report, which comes out once a month on manufacturing. Both of them give you some incredible predictive information, particularly the ACES report. Chris, thanks for joining us again. You're welcome. Thank you. So what is the ACES report showing? Because I've been watching that myself and I've talked to a couple other folks about it and they're, they're amazed at the the quality of the prediction within the report. Yeah, we're very pleased with with what that has developed into. We started this about three or four years ago, and the guy that has built this model for us is a retired lieutenant colonel who used to be in the artillery. And he pointed out that as an artillery officer, accuracy was really, really important. Um, So he ended up developing this very sophisticated multivariable model to track where those shells would go. And now he applies that to the industrial economy. So we've got this immensely mind-numbingly complex 26 variable system that tries to track all the things that have an impact on the manufacturing sector. And what's happened is that we've gotten about 95, 96% accuracy month to month, quarter to quarter, year to year. So we're able to look at everything from inputs to outputs to you name it. So we've learned to trust it. And there's a couple of things that have been very encouraging. First off, we were able to track all the growth that we got in 21 and into the early part of this year then things began to drift back and we all watched that happen i mean the the discussion about recession and all that stuff sort of began in the middle of this year when you started to see some declines in activity but the aces kept showing that after that period of decline it starts to turn really dramatically into 23 and partly driven by inventory accumulation and also companies investing a lot more in machinery. And that's been a theme that we've been hitting on for a while is that the worker shortage has been endemic. We've been dealing with it now for 10, 20 years. And the only real way to deal with it has been to automate and use technology and use robotics uh, to get what you used to get out of people because you can't find the people to get it out of anymore. And without going off on a political rant, you, you hear politicians mewling on about things over which they have no control, but you look at them and say, how did you not notice that people eventually were going to retire? I mean, you knew that Junior was going to retire uh, 65 years after they were born. By 2030, all of the boomers will be at retirement age. And that's 70 million people. So at some point, there had to have been some concern about where the replacements for that population were going to come from. Since we can't suddenly tell people to have more kids, it wouldn't help us for 20 years anyway. 
um, we're not likely to change our immigration laws or change the child labor laws. We're kind of stuck with trying to do it with machinery, and that's been driving a lot of that growth. So it's encouraging to a degree because a lot of the manufacturers that I talk to are saying, well, we're having a really good year. We have been using machinery, automation, technology, robotics much more extensively, which is helping us with productivity, helping us with efficiency, capacity utilization numbers are back up to normal. And so it's kind of a kind of a mixed bag. You know, we have seen some declines in some sectors, but as we were talking right before the show started, many of the companies that I talked to are having the best year of their of their history is just dealing with this kind of new demand for manufacturing, even getting into the service sector. So I have a question for you. Yes. Where's this recession talk coming from? They're not laying off people. Right. In, inflation is, I don't think this is really a, a, a true inflation. I think it's because people are ripping off the population and raising prices, you know, take the oil, oil companies, the gas companies, I mean, the gas goes up, the gas goes down, then it goes a little higher. And, you know, it's the national debt, my favorite topic, never going to be paid off. Uh, where's the recession? Yeah, I mean, I, I kind of agree with you in the sense that a lot of it is a kind of manufactured expectations. We've always known that consumers can fundamentally talk themselves into and out of a recession. If they spend, particularly in this country, you escape recession because we're a fairly consumer-driven economy. There is still $3.5 trillion in excess savings in the hands of consumers. Most of those consumers are the more well-paid consumers. They're the people who are making six figures or close. So that's discretionary money. They can spend it any way they want. If they decide to hang on to it till next year because they're worried about recession, that's likely to slow us a bit, but they might decide to spend. And if you look at the latest retail numbers, they're spending. Um, they're not sitting on it as we thought they might. I think a lot of it, in, you and I were talking about it earlier, and I don't want to be a media basher, but there's a tendency for the media to approach economics kind of the same way they produce, approach anything else. If it bleeds, it leads. They don't really want to talk about good news because it's more dramatic to talk about bad news. And there are definitely sectors in the U.S. economy that are not doing well. You know, the accommodations world is just now coming back to life. Um, you still have issues around some of the service sector uh, that took a real hit in 2020. The manufacturers are, are doing quite well, but some of the service sectors are still struggling. So you can find pain um, if, you, if you look for it, but you can also find a lot of growth and, and, and success. And the problem with a lot of the, like you mentioned, the oil market, and it's always, you know, we look at the oil sector and say, gee, you know, they're, they're rapacious, greedy barons. But the thing is, they're driven by a market, and the market is driven by investors. You know, back in 2020, nobody was crying crocodile tears when the per barrel price of, of oil fell under 20 bucks. 
you know, nobody could make money at it. And they're like, well, there's nothing we can do about it. That's what the market's pricing it at because we're in the middle of this pandemic. And, you know, we're all we can either do is is deal with it or shut down. Well, now the market has driven the prices up and the oil companies are like, we don't set the prices. If you want to know why oil is expensive, talk to the people who are using it as an investment tool. It's set by investors. And the investors respond like they always do. They're like, ah, there's going to be a demand. I'm going to buy oil. And what people often don't understand is like one tanker full of oil may change hands 10 or 15 times between leaving the Middle East and arriving at the New Jersey refineries because you get a guy that says, I'll buy the tanker because I think I can sell it for more. And then he sells it to the next guy. Oh, I think I can sell it for more. And then finally, the last one who buys it, he's the one that watches the price go down going, crap, what happened? How come it went down? Well, you were the last one on the boat. I mean, it's markets are efficient kind of, but they also test your ability to hold down your breakfast because like with crypto you know it's like wow it's worth a lot now it's wouldn't it whoa what you know how much is it worth you know i don't know depends on what anybody wants to pay for it so and when you look at the other producers you know hiking their prices they're they're trying to be proactive they're trying to think well you know it's going to cost me this that and the other to produce next year so i better price accordingly we're changing the supply chain but i'm not terribly worried about inflation getting markedly worse we saw it come down just a bit in the last iteration the fed doesn't even look at the cpi they look at the pce and pce is showing inflation at about four and a half percent um so it's like everything else in economics, we deliberately make it as complicated as possible so that nobody can understand it and then they can't hold us responsible for getting it wrong. According to your the flagship report, uh, you talk about in, uh, the Canadian market mm -hmm. uh, where their inflation seems to be stabilizing. Yeah, They always seem to track what we do. So. Right. We're not, our media and politicians are talking about inflation, 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 but Canada now is stabilizing. So mm -hmm. is it possible that we're really stabilizing, but the media doesn't want us to stabilize? They want to talk about if it bleeds, it leads? Kind of. I mean, it's it's partly that they're not prepared to to take a position, but you're absolutely right. The Canadian inflation and inflation in many other countries has begun to stabilize even ours. I mean, when you look CPI numbers beginning of this month, they were expected to be eight, eight and a half, maybe even 9%. It came in at 7.7, which isn't great, but it's less than eight. And PCE is still sitting at about 4.3, 4.4 which is twice what the Fed would like it to be. So it's not like it's disappeared. But much of what drove inflation early in the year has become a little less of a problem now. Oil prices have not gotten cheap, but they're not 130, 140 bucks a barrel. They're now in the 80s and 90s. If you look at the supply chain, it isn't fixed, 
but slowly but surely other countries are stepping up we're getting more from vietnam more from india the reshoring is as having an impact it's not going to change the equation dramatically until probably next year the other thing that's been driving inflation which is probably the biggest worry now at least as far as the fed is concerned is wages and all the other inflation drivers they eventually fade so the supply chain eventually gets fixed oil prices eventually come down once wages go up they don't come down they stay high and the only way that the wages drop is when people start getting laid off so it's not like you're going to lose your pay increase you're just going to lose your job <laughs> so as long as people got a pay increase and kept their job then wages keep going up and the worker shortage is is really the this underlying problem for the economy that's causing just all kinds of headaches throughout i mean it's it's the fact that one of the reasons we're not seeing layoffs at the rate that we might is that many companies are like yeah i should lay people off i've seen enough business slowdown that i can justify it but it took me three years to find that guy i'm not going to fire him now because if i need him next year there's no way i'll hire him back and so it's like new i'm going to protect my workforce as long as i possibly can i'll cut everything else before i start cutting those guys because it is too hard to find qualified people. And so as long as, and they, and these workers know they have that leverage, which is why you've had more active unions and you've had more demands for wage increases and flexible schedules. And, you know, everybody wants a, you know, a Tesla assigned to them as their company car, you know, or something. Cause it's like, Hey, you need me. You would think that uh, Washington, whichever party is in control, you would think that they would finally get to the immigration issue uh -huh. and start looking to bring in talented, skilled people, yep. or at least intelligent enough people so that we can bring them here and then educate them and give right. them skills instead of waiting for the Gen Zs to start having babies and wait 20 years. Right, exactly. You would think, but they have consistently done nothing. And and it's and it's one of those things that it's hard to even turn the corner fast because if you try to now reverse course and start trying to recruit those people, well, you're in competition with everybody else in the world. I mean, the Europeans want those people and the Asians want those people and the Latin Americans want those people. So the U.S. is suddenly in a position where it's like, hey, you know, we're not necessarily the first choice of the people with those skills. One of the kind of interesting debates that's happening right now, um, and we'll see, it's not going to change things markedly, but you have millions of Ukrainians that have fled the country originally when they thought like everybody else did that this was going to be a relatively short war they kind of took refuge in europe with the intent of going back home in a matter of months well now they're looking at their home and they're going there's no home to go back to it's been destroyed and now i have to 
discover if I'm going to reinvent myself someplace else. And so the United States is suddenly dealing with a lot of Ukrainians who are saying, hey, I have a distant cousin in Chicago, and I'd like to come work for you. And here we have a highly sophisticated, educated people in a manufacturing sector, et cetera, that could be coming into the U.S. But the Germans want them, the French want them, the Poles want them. You know, it's everybody in the world is saying, well, you know, sorry about what happened to your country, but we could sure use your skills here. Beyond that, we need to to think in terms of, of short-term solutions. How do we encourage people who ordinarily would be retiring to hang in there a few more years or putting a lot more emphasis, as I've said, on machinery? You know, it's just you can't find people, so you do it with robots. I ran into my first robot server the other day, a little robot that came rolling up to me in a restaurant and delivered my food <laughs> and asked me if my coffee was hot enough. <laughs> and and if and if it was to tell her and then she would be happy and roll off but it's like i haven't had a server ask me if my coffee was hot enough for months <laughs> <laughs> well you know this uh, robotic uh, uh, event that's happening here in this country this is not new for in the world no no japanese are the ones who did this right when they lost and for exactly the, whole, the same reason. That's right. They lost a whole generation of men because they put them to war and killed them all. Yeah. No, I mean, it's, it's, if you, again, it's the politicians in this country, it's like for crying out loud, just look at other countries. Japan has a much older population than we do. They faced this issue 10 years before we did when they realized that regardless of what we do, we are going to see more people leave the workforce and come into the workforce because of the age. So they had to start replacing them with with machines because Japan is even more antagonistic towards immigration than we are. I mean, it's not a country that's friendly to outsiders. And so the robot revolution took place there earlier. And it is kind of an object lesson. I mean, we can look at that and say, that's eventually where we're heading. We can learn from their successes and their failures. But people who've been in Japan, I mean, robots serve as, as attendants in senior living facilities. And the residents at these places like the robots better than people. So... <laughs> Chris, I, I'm just curious, and it's off topic, but your skill set of knowledge, I want to probe a little bit on cryptocurrency. Mm -hmm. I, I guess I feel fairly comfortable if I buy GM stock or Ford stock. I feel like there's something behind it. But when I buy cryptocurrency, I feel like there's air behind it. <laughs> there's, exactly. there's a guy behind it. The guy who's putting the real money in his pocket. Exactly. <laughs> Well, crypto is is a classic investment tool. What I've compared it to for years is the art market. And people have used the art market for investment purposes for a long time, but they have to understand going into it that the value of what they hold is entirely dependent on whether there's demand for it. And the example that I used to use is a few years back, a Frida Kahlo painting sold for like two million bucks. A couple of years later, one of her paintings sold for 36 million bucks. 
It's like, what the heck is the difference? Was it that much better a painting? No, it was just a Frida Kahlo painting. But in the immediate or the aftermath of the first sale, two Japanese investors, collectors, started competing for that painting. And it drove up the price. And crypto is that way as well. If there's a demand for it, it goes up and up and up. And then all of a sudden, for whatever reason, the demand falls and it's of no value because there is no tangible kind of existence to it. It's even more ephemeral than the commodities market or the real estate market. There's no there's no there there. It's entirely based on demand. So it's it's a very useful tool for people who can lose $100,000 in a second and not bat an eye because they might make $100,000 in a second. So it's like, hey, this is my play money. I've always kind of looked at the ideal crypto investors, the person that can wander into a Vegas poker table and say yeah i'm gonna bet 150 bazillion dollars because well what the hell i have it um i can bet but even that's not a good comparison because at least the poker player has some skills to bring to the table you know what you're doing with crypto is just hoping that there's demand and sometimes there is and sometimes there isn't so it's it's legitimate as as an investment tool but that's really about all. And and it's definitely not for the person that is investing for a purpose. Like, I want to retire. I'm going to put my money into crypto. Oh, no, no, no. Don't do that. Um, it's like, it's like I have a pocket full of money that I don't know what to do with. So what the heck? Um, I'll buy crypto. I think of it more like playing roulette. Black. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, 35 yeah. to 1 odds. Yeah, yeah exactly. Right. exactly. Those, are, those are great odds. I'll take those. Yeah, yeah exactly. So, you know, people have made a fortune off it. Yeah, and they've and they've lost a fortune and it's just it's and it has ever ever been. I mean, in in some respects it reminds me of these big phenomenon we've had in past centuries, the big tulip scandal in holland where people were investing in tulip bulbs and it's like but even then at least you had a tulip at the end so yeah, right. well let's sail around the world uh, and take a look at some of the other countries how is china doing i'm hearing and reading that you know their gdp is at 4.3 percent which to us would be wow that's great which to them is like yeah yeah. Yeah. China is not doing very well. Um, they are suffering from the supply chain problem only from their origin. You know, it's like the reason that we've got that supply chain crisis is the lockdowns and the zero tolerance and all that stuff in China. So we're not getting the product that we need, but they are not selling that product either because it's stuck in their ports. You've also got to a government now that is really taking aim at its own wealthy. Um, the 100 richest Chinese have fled China because right now the government is seizing as much as 80 or 90 percent of their wealth. And oh. they're doing it for ideological purposes. They're basically saying you are not consistent with the policies. I mean, China is going back to Mao. And Xi Jinping is kind of reiterating the the attitude of Mao Zedong. And the 20th Party Congress was 
really very interesting because it was supposed to be when sort of the pro-business Chinese exerted some control over Xi. Instead, he crushed them. Li Keqiang, who was challenging Xi, was literally kicked out of the Politburo, is no longer in the leadership, and Hu Jintao, the former leader, was physically escorted from the building by armed guards. And it was basically a signal that Deng Xiaoping's to get rich is glorious is dead. Now, there's a new rule in China like every day that's restricting wealth. It is now illegal for a celebrity to endorse anything. They can be put in prison. Um, one of the singers was just sentenced to 50 years of hard labor for endorsing eyeshadow. Wow. So, you know, I mean, it's like, okay, this is, and it's going to hurt China drastically because countries that were already a little queasy about dealing with China are like, we're done. Um, we're done. And meanwhile, the wealthy Chinese are showing up all over the country, um, kind of like, hi. I mean, I was talking to a guy, it's a economic development person in Nebraska, and said this extremely wealthy Chinese guy just moved to Fremont saying, Paul. Oh, tell me about this Husker football of yours. I'm very interested. Um, it's like, I plan to live here in Nebraska now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So so we just had to quickly say that, well, the most important thing to understand is that the N on the University of Nebraska football helmet does not stand for knowledge. Uh, so. <laughs> and Europe seems to be really struggling with uh, Ireland, the only economy that's holding up at the moment. How's the rest of the EU? Yeah, Europe is not doing as bad as, as it would seem. I mean, they still have some growth in areas. You're still seeing some capital investing. But the Europeans are, are struggling mightily with oil and energy and, and gas and all the rest. Their number one concern, they have enough gas and, and energy in reserve to get them probably through January. And mm. if the if the winter is not brutal, they will probably be able to kind of squeak their way into the spring. Everything now kind of depends on how bad the winter is after the first of the year, because if they continue to see benign weather which they've had so far they'll probably get through this relatively safely and then be able to start recovering in the spring they've reconsidered a lot of their relationships i mean they're doing business now with libya and algeria who they never did before and looking to permanently replace russia but everything is still kind of hinging on how does that thing end you know does their is there a partition of Ukraine in the future? Is there some kind of a compromise? Is there change of government in Moscow? All of that is up in the air. Britain is in the worst shape by far. Um, they've been hit by Brexit and the fact that they can't keep a leader in place for more than a month. Um, but Germany kind of holding its own. France is still growing. Um, Italy has a new government that is rapidly alienating Italy from the rest of Europe. That's not going to turn out well. Um, but some of the other northern states, not doing too bad. Um, Sweden, 
has kind of maintained. So Europe is not in great shape, but it's not um, on the, the cusp of collapse either. Well, let's see, what haven't we covered? I guess South America is kind of the uh, stepchild continent that always seems to have potential that's unrealized. Yep, I mean, one of the interesting things about South America right now, it's tilted hard to the left of late. Um, you've seen left-wing regimes. Uh, the most recent one was Lula coming back to power in Brazil. But some of the growth numbers there are not bad. Mexico is back to around 2% growth, and they're highly connected to what happens in the U.S. And that's tied into a lot of the reshoring conversation. And I think we've talked about this before, but Kansas City's Southern Railroad is the smallest of the class ones, and they are currently in merger talks, I think the merger has gone through, with Canadian Pacific, which is the second smallest class one. The Surface Transportation Board allowed that merger to go through, so the two smallest railroads could be competitive with the bigger ones. That is changing a lot of the expectations about transportation, because KCS controls a port in Mexico, Lazaro Cardenas, Canadian Pacific controls one in Vancouver. They're going to bring the loads in through those two ports and do the brake bulk and distribution in the middle of the United States and haul it in by rail. That ends up making even more of a connection between Mexico and the United States. The worker challenge that we're dealing with in the immediate future is going to be satisfied by Mexican labor and not Mexican labor coming into the U.S., but working in northern Mexico. Because the pattern of immigration for the last several years, we've never had fewer Mexicans coming into the United States than we've had in the last couple of years. The immigrants that are coming into the U.S. now are from Central America, Latin America. They're fleeing Honduras and Guatemala and El Salvador, Venezuela. The Mexican workers migrated as far as northern Mexico because of the growth of the manufacturing there, and that's where they stopped. So it was sort of like, we won't keep going into the U.S. as long as we have jobs here. And as the jobs have expanded in northern Mexico, they've absorbed their own population. But then the Mexican authorities say, what we don't have room for is fleeing Guatemalans, Hondurans, El Salvadorans, Venezuelans. So we keep pushing them north. It's like, you deal with them. You know, it's like, you know, it's not our problem. Um, I was talking to a border patrol guy. He says, well, the Mexicans are trying to be helpful. We had a bunch of Guatemalans coming across the border and the Mexican guy on the other side says, heads up, they're Guatemalan. Um, so just so we know where to send them later. Well, there's always Martha's Vineyard. Yeah, exactly. You know, I mean, it's just, it's just, I, I keep, I keep waiting for, if you really wanted to discourage, and I don't know why the politicians haven't thought of this, if you want to discourage immigration into the United States, and if you're going to ship people anyway, take them at the border and send them to North Dakota now. You know, I mean, two <laughs> steps off the bus, and it was like, what the hell? <laughs> I'm ready to I'm, drop 80 I'm, degrees. I'm from a tropical country. What are you doing to me? <laughs> so. Well, Chris, we know you've got a hard stop. You've got uh, other people to talk to. So 
thank you for joining us again on Manufacturing Talk Radio. We appreciate the updates. You're so welcome. And, uh, and you know, in our next episode, we'll apologize to the people of North Dakota. Um, so I, <laughs> I, I speak to them quite a bit. And, and I, I absolutely actually love that state. But I always hear the same joke every time I go to North Dakota, which is North Dakota is so flat, you can watch your dog run away for two days. Um, so, and with that, I will leave you guys to your own devices. All right, thank you much. Good show. While you folks are surfing the web, go to armada-intel.com, and you can check out the flagship report and the ACES report. Excellent documents. You get two months free, so jump in there now. And visit us at jacketmediaco.com for all of the episodes of Manufacturing Talk Radio. Thanks for being with us. Thanks. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.